0: Even before my graduation, I started practicing and I practiced law for four years. I realized that it is so difficult for the poor and the marginalized and the vulnerable groups to get justice. People had to wait for many, many years. Even when you get a decision, you really don't know whether it's going to be implemented or not. And then I was questioning myself, like I'm working as a justice professional to provide justice to people. So am I really doing that? Or am I just like working mechanically because I have to do it and it's my job? And the other side of my practice was like, it was such a male dominated profession. It really was. And sometimes I used to feel that they don't even see a woman there how well you, you are pleading, how good you are doing, it's, it's not there.
1: Priti Tapa has led community justice and conflict transformation programs in Nepal for about 16 years, and she currently works in a senior role at the Asia Foundation there. What's fascinating about this is the sheer turbulence of that 16 year period, the tail end of the Maoist insurgency, a drawn out and extremely contentious transition to multi-party politics, a transformational new constitution, the 2015 earthquake. This pulls us directly into some of the most central dilemmas of conflict transformation work. Structural and community level perspectives versus the national level political drama that tends to preoccupy international observers. Informal versus formal mechanisms in meeting people's aspirations for everyday justice. Progressive social agendas that we may have in developing these programs versus working with the grain and what will fly in local, cultural, social, political circumstances. To her great credit, Preeti also gives a frank accounting of her experience as a woman and an Asian woman specifically in spaces that are very male-dominated and do tend to be quite hierarchical. Let's get into it. (music) So I I do usually start these in the same place. If you meet someone socially, a relative, you know, at a a wedding, someone who's not a specialist, how do you explain this work? How do you explain what you've been doing for now 15, 16 years now?
0: 16 years, yes. This question I always get, and what do you do? Because they all know that I've studied law, I'm a lawyer, but I'm working in an international development organization. So they'll say, what do you do exactly there? And I tell them that I work on access to justice and conflict transmission. So when I say that, uh, when I talk about access to justice, they, they get it because um, me... Being a lawyer, uh, they can relate with the justice word, but they may they may not know exactly what that means. But if I say I work on peace building, then people um, they have a different reaction. Uh, they say that oh, peace building—it's a you know there's there's nothing there's no substance in this type of work. They feel that it's touchy feely, like what exactly the the does this mean? So that's the, the response I get. They'll ask me, but in Nepal, there's already peace. We have peace agreement. We have constitution. So what exactly do you do? with? The- we don't need peace building work now because we are already in peace. So for many people, the absence of violence is peace. So that is also the question that I always get.
1: Mm. <laughs> the obvious question is, uh, how do you, respond to that. What does conflict transformation look like at the community level in the Nepali context, Uh, in particular, community mediation, which I know has been your biggest focus area over this time?
0: So community mediation, uh, it's a structured process where we bring community people to resolve their own problems, right? A community resolving their own community problems. If you look at the cases uh, that come for mediation are cases like land, um, monetary transaction, uh, family disputes um, that's related to property, lately more domestic violence cases, defamation cases, wage At the beginning, um, the cases that came to mediation were all interpersonal and community mediation was set up to deal with um, like more interpersonal person to person kind of disputes. But uh, later, when um, there was lots of trust on mediators, when mediators became more experienced dealing with um, like all kinds of civil cases, then um, like more complex cases started to come that, that uh, was not only person to person, but uh, that was related to group, um, like a person having a problem uh, with the community forestry a group dispute uh, that's related to road construction. Lots of people's land um, was taken for the construction of the road and then people are not happy with it um, and they came for mediation. So once mediation mediators were able to gain the trust and respect of the community, the complex cases started to come and then uh, we had to, like again, do... Uh, another round of training because uh, solving interpersonal dispute and solving group multi-stakeholder dispute is completely different and so as Mm -hmm. the need evolved, even the the program evolved.
1: Mm. I was reading a little bit about the the model and what was striking in comparison to other cases was the uh, sort of rostering or Selection of potential mediators at a community level, and the attempt to have a pretty representative group across caste and ethnic and religious and gender lines, and then the disputants could so to speak look at the list of available mediators and pick ones that they felt would be able to hear them you know be able to understand where they were coming from did that Model uh, I mean how did how did that model arise? It, it, it's it's unusual and I think it, it's it seems very fitting to, to Nepal's very um, linguistically, ethnically diverse situation.
0: So it's an interesting thing like how we came up with this co facilitation. When Asia Foundation started working on community mediation around late 2000, early 2001, there was a law called Local Self Governance Act. That act had given judicial power to the municipality and village development committees. That uh, the judicial power is basically mediation arbitration. So it was a hybrid hybrid process med arb process. Because this med arb concept was there, uh, we felt that there's this opportunity to work on community mediation. And uh, in that act, it was mentioned that there will be a panel of three to uh, do the work because it was a med-arb. There was arbitration too, right? And uh, when we started working on community mediation, it was at the time of conflict and uh, 2003, the elected local representatives um, were not there because their tenure was not extended and the new elections were not happening. So there was this vacuum, no elected representative. And uh, it was very difficult for us to continue our partnership with the ministry. So at that time we had to change our modality to work with with the ministry, to working with the civil society, to build the capacity of community, working closely with the local government. We moved ahead with the, our plan and at that time, we felt that this through model of three facilitators would be a useful model because though we had traditional systems of going to the third party to resolve uh, your mm-hmm. dispute, it was not necessarily mediation. And it was more like arbitration or even adjudication. So to win the, the trust of the people, we felt that if they can choose the mediators then they will feel much more comfortable coming to the process because for them, it was also a new process. It was, and we always, uh, when we introduced community mediation at the local community, we said that it is something very similar to the traditional system, but it is more structured and it has principles and values um, that really respect human rights and uh, gender um, justice thing. So, we felt that if they get to choose the mediator, they will feel a little bit comfortable to come and access this, uh, this space. It was also like check and balance between and among the mediators, because when you are there and you when you are facilitating, but know that there are other facilitators, there's less chances of being biased, because we were um, socialized in a place, in a community where we have always seen the third party making decisions, right? Um, a system like where only the rich and powerful are the mediators, only the men are the mediators, and, and people have their own biases. So we felt that if there's this three mediators, there's also then check and balance, and then it is also like we'll be able to make it more inclusive for example if there's a woman uh, disputants and both the parties choose a male uh, mediator then we can even have a female mediator there so that this other dynamics of like being inclusive being more sensitive toward gender is there but it no, it does not mean that only women will bring the gender lens we we do give training to mediators on gender and human rights and we do prepare them to have that lens
1: mm-hmm. you have written about the potential for that model to itself be a uh, a catalyst for some degree of of social and cultural change by instituting the practice and empowering or positioning the people that could itself challenge uh, some traditional or uh, elite biased, let's say, (laughs) practices at the local level. Could you speak a little bit about that and how that has played out?
0: So when we were uh, designing community mediation program, when we were designing the manual and the selection process of mediators, we felt that when we go to the community, the community needs to accept this as a forum where they can go and really talk about their problems. To do that, people need to feel comfortable and say that, yes, we can go there because it's a very inclusive system and the process is also very inclusive. So to have that, we have to have Like whatever the composition of the community, we have to mirror that in the mediation panel too, right? So when we went to the community, we made this process very, very participatory. Wherever we selected the mediation location, the trainers were also the local people. They went to the villages where uh, we were about to set up mediation center And uh, they did a a focus group type of discussion uh, with the community. First, they explained to them what community mediation is, what are the roles and responsibility of community mediators, and asked the community that who are the people in the community uh, suitable for this role. Then the community started giving names right first initially they all give the name of the usual suspect like the the male political party leaders or at that time there was no elected representative but still people were actively involved in politics and they gave names of um, like um, social workers or ex-service holders those kind and uh, we really had to like nudge them to give Names of women and uh, names of the marginalized community. Like if you have Dalits community, if you have indigenous community, definitely you have women. So, what about them? Are there women that you think can play the role of a mediator? And for them to come up with the names, they really had to think okay, who will be that person? when we got the name the other challenge was to convince them to come and take the role because at the, initially when we started this program many women they didn't want to take the role of a mediator because once it was a voluntary process and they felt that it's just add to their workload and um, they say that we have never seen women mediating or oh, it's related to dispute. Maybe there's a security risk or maybe our family won't agree. So after that, there was lots of talk one on one with them on their role and like to prepare them to like really tell them that they can do it. Telling them that we'll be there, we'll do the training, we'll be there, providing them on the spot, coaching, mentoring. So for them, training was there, but they felt that like that won't be enough. So it was accompaniment that really built their confidence that, okay, there'll be people who will be working with us, will be accompanying us uh, in this whole process. So that was itself a challenge to make the panel inclusive and then even in the training uh, for the first uh, one or two days it was very difficult to have this um, like uh, to to really have a meaningful participation from women or from people from the marginalized group so like the trainer had to give special emphasis on like providing space to speak up to to feel comfortable so it's it's all um, That we really had to learn quickly that like only bringing them is not enough. Like we have to have special mechanism to really empower them, to make them comfortable. So these are the things that we had to learn by doing and then we have to like really adapt to the needs uh, at the end of the training, these people had built relationship, they know each other, they know about each other's um, like limitations and fears and values, which was very like good to see. but once they started working together, it got really concrete and the relationship really deepened because the mediation panel was a composition. it's a mirror of the composition of this community. It also rippled down to their families and then to their neighborhoods. So just imagine like if uh, this mediation program was not there, then like it would be very difficult for a Dalit woman to sit together with upper caste male and work together, like be together and do this. So it is like lots of uh, encouragement and empowerment for this and a slow shift in the social norms and cultural norms it was a gradual uh, progress one step at a time but I think it started with the selection process
1: mm. have there been cases where those security risks or the, those fears um, materialized it, I mean it seems if you're talking about you know issues of of, of land and inheritance and something like gender-based violence, which could lead to criminal proceedings. and, and then the stakes are pretty high, right? So I, I can understand why people would be concerned about about risks to themselves.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, because at that time it was conflict time, and um, there was like lots of restriction on movement. People felt that the insurgent was always looking at who is monitoring, like who is doing what, or like involved in what kind of activities. So there was that. Um, then resolving people's problem, like there's already people fighting or people have like um, damaged their relationship and there's bitterness. So working on um, conflict resolution itself is tricky and if um, there's lots of animosity between the disputants then it also flows to the to the community mediators uh, mm-hmm. to stop them from like doing mediation oh please don't like because community mediators are from the community they know like who are mediating and then they know like who are the people that are closer to the mediators who can Take messages, so they will send message through other people. Like please don't take the case. Uh, if you take it, then they'll there are risk. So like type of threatening, but um, at the same time mediators. Uh, they continued doing this work because they felt that they have a social safety net. Like within themselves, there were 27 mediators in a village. So they felt that, okay, they have each other. And uh, then there's the trainers who are there. And then a mediation program had lots of buy-in from the local government too. So this program was run from the village development committee's office. So they were providing them space, they were providing money from the development budget for their day to day expense. So there was lots of buy in. So I think that also gave them some kind of strength and security that, okay, if like people cannot just come and do anything to us, they are people.
1: Mm. Turning a little bit to the wider political. Context that you referred to. When you put this on a, a timeline, if we're talking even just from two thousand and one onwards, you know it's the the massacre of the royal family in two thousand and one. that's failed peace talks in two thousand three. <laughs> there's you know even after the peace agreement that it was almost impossible to form a, a government, a functioning government until what twenty fourteen, if if memory serves. Uh, I mean, how do you position the role of sort of community-level dispute resolution against that very, very turbulent national political context?
0: Yeah. um, So, yes, the national political context was not so great. And then it was like lots of political, lots of government change, lots of movement. So, like, when we started this program, there was no elected representative Uh, We were in conflict. The only person the government representative was the village secretary, but even they were not able to stay in villages because of the security threat. So when we started this program, actually the presence of government government in the villages was almost nil or, or was very weak. And um, at that time, this uh, local VDC secretary was like really overburdened with work because this one person had to do everything from administrative to verification work, to development work, to conflict resolution work. And um, when we went um, to the villages and talked about the community mediation program, they were very happy to have this support because they felt that it will drastically reduce their workload, and at the same time, they were feeling that um, if they don't have to do this, then they will get more time to do other development administrative work, and that will also build state society relationship because then people will see that okay we are getting service uh, from the from the government building. But uh, when we started this program, there was also people's court, right? The Maoists had their people's court. And the people's court were also dealing with lots of conflict. So initially, when uh, we had gone there, they also felt that, okay, what, are, what is this community mediation? Like, why are they there? Is it a parallel structure like people's court? like it was a conflict time we really did not know who is insurgent or um, like who is watching us the community people used to say that and the community mediators used to, to tell that randomly people will ask them about the process they'll just ask them like okay tell us what's there in the in the in, in the training manual so directly indirectly they were also observing this um we had that challenge too about whether this prop this program would be stopped because uh, Maoist was not very supportive of um, like foreign foreign um, like organization coming and working in, in villages. and uh, But for this, they never saw that there's an outsider. They always felt that because we work so closely with the community people from the trainer, from the mediators, everyone were local people. So they felt that, oh, it's a community pro- program and we should not create hindrance. So that was that. The uh, like the biggest challenge for us at that time was there was no legal framework that really supported community mediation. So people used to always ask us, "Who gave you the mandate to do community mediation? What is the legal validity of the agreement?" And at that time, uh, we used to say that when two individuals sign an agreement, it stands as a contract. So what we have, we realized at that time was like we really have to have a legal mechanism to support this. So we started coordinating um, and linking community mediator mediation with the policymakers. So we we started uh, talking with the with the Supreme Court judiciary and Ministry of Law and Justice and Ministry of Local Development. That it is really contributing to the bigger justice system, and it has to be part of the justice system. So we need some kind of validation and, um, like, some some document or some legal instrument to, to really get the legitimacy of the whole process. So the Ministry of Law and Justice they started um, taking initiative in drafting. Umbrella Mediation Act, where uh, there was this provision of um, court mediation, community mediation, and commercial mediation. In two thousand eleven, we got the um, Community Mediation Act, and in two thousand fourteen, it was
1: implemented. Hmm. One of the things that is striking to me is that on the the one hand, you have a fairly radical program of reforms being suggested by the by the mouse by the CPNM. um and i know the extent of their popular support fluctuated and, and can be debated but on the one hand you have sort of this kind of radical program for abolition somehow of caste and and an ethnically neutral state and, and federalism and so on and so forth and on the other hand you have a uh Consensus based, relatively light um, framework at, at community level. Does this kind of process bump up against structural issues um, that can't easily be resolved? Do, I mean, do cases bring up issues of, of sort of wealth distribution or political representation or uh, concentrated land ownership, these sorts of things, which can't really be resolved within the frame of, a, of a, a mediation setting?
0: So, yes, mediation had its own limitations. And um, the cases that you had mentioned uh, really did not come of, to mediation because the community people knew that, I think, the mediators, they did not have this bandwidth or the skill to resolve that kind of mediation where uh, they had to have the structural policy changes right later when we started doing multi stakeholder mediation there were um, lots of disputes that's related to um, actually it's it was related to governance but people even uh, like um, labeled it as a religious dispute like if there was once we so for an for example we had a dispute over um, the burial land of a Christian. They used to bury uh, the body um, in the riverbanks but then the community later um, like stopped them from doing that and the Christian community went to the municipality because they were the ones who needs to manage uh, the burial ground to ask for the ground and then they had no place and then there was this big protest and uh, the municipal office was locked down and all this. And uh, people said, oh, it's a dispute between Hindu and uh, the the Christian. And they they frame it like that. But actually, it's a governance problem because the municipality did not provide them the space. And um, so this issue came for multi-stakeholder mediation, and uh, the stakeholder was the government, the community, wherever they were looking for land, and uh, the, the Christian community. So the first process of uh, multi-stakeholder mediation is also dialogue. The mediation purpose is resolution, but the dialogue, like main purpose, is not resolution. It's more to create understanding between parties and to build trust and then come up with a joint action or a vision for the future where it is not your problem, my problem, where people think that it's our problem and how do you move forward to address that?
1: I guess that must have changed a lot in the last few years with the considerable change in the role and the in the capacities you know gradually of local government I imagine this has evolved quite rapidly
0: yeah that has evolved rapidly and uh, now we have um, elected government after 20 years in in 2017. Um so and then uh, this constitution has um, really institutionalized community mediation because um, it has given judicial power to the local government. Under that they'll make judicial committees. So each and every local government will have judicial committees that is headed by the deputy mayor. They can even adjudicate and they can do mediation. So there there is a list in one list, whatever cases are listed, it has to go for mediation first. Therefore, in each and every ward, there has to be a mediation center. So that is that. So yeah, this program has evolved through lots of changes in the government, in the system. So from no legal framework, we had Mediation Act. But um, at the same time, the Ministry of Then the Ministry of Local Development were also doing lots of work on promoting community mediation and then this whole uh, like change in the government, new constitution, new framework, election, the new representatives. So it's a long journey and lots of adaptation and adjustment and being uh, relevant and being there for the community. If
1: I could roll back to the start, the beginning of that journey for you a little bit. Um, What was appealing about working on community level dispute, conflict transformation, dispute resolution when you were coming out of your legal education and you you (laughs) hinted that people were a little bit surprised that you took that direction? Um, What was the... What was the genesis of that? What uh, motivated you to to work on on those kinds of issues?
0: Mm, yeah. So one of your questions was also like, what motivated you to uh, go for legal studies, right? Yeah. So yeah, I can I can start from that. It's a very interesting thing. So when I like told my father that I would like to study law he was taken aback because in our family there's no one who has uh, like studied law in our near and far relatives there's no one <laughs> who has uh, done law and then um, my father was thinking like why really why do you really want to study law because people at that time usually used to see law as a very male dominated profession it's very demanding profession, and only men can do it. Like it's very difficult for a woman to get into that space. And um, then the the law college um, was, I think, in most of the countries also the same. There's like lots of political activism happens. And then in our law college also, there's only one law college, and then there's lots of political activism and. When I went to college, it was um, 89, the time where there was lots of protests and demonstration against the one-party system and this movement for multi-party democracy. And my family felt that, oh, law campus is not a safe space and politics is not good and Uh, you cannot do that and all these kind of things and then nobody in my family had gone and studied in a co-education college everyone used to go to girls college i went to a girls school then there are boys and you have to be careful of them and they're all politically motivated all this it was more to protect me and there was like are you sure you really want to do it and at that time, I was like pretty sure that I'd like to study, but I really did not know what it means to be a lawyer and what exactly I'll be doing when I'll be practicing. I was, um, law was fascinating for me because I had read lots of novels, like Shidney Sheldon novels, where the, the the character, main character is a lawyer, I'd seen movies. So I thought that, oh, it's a very like, (laughs) you know, sexy profession. It's really, it was that, uh, yeah, I I really did not know, like, what that really means. (laughs) You were young. (laughs) Yeah, I was 16.
1: Exactly.
0: And I really did not know. So I went to law campus, and that was a very, like, enlightening experience for me, because I studied in Kathmandu in a girls' school in a very protected environment, And going to law college and meeting people from different spheres of life, from um, different places of Nepal, like hearing different views and opinion, like really broadened my horizon on Nepal and on different issues that Nepal was going through at that time once i got into law campus i really liked the the subject matters and it was difficult for me because um, like i had no support system or i really or i was i was not prepared what to expect you know when i went to law college but the curriculum was fascinating and i was like learning so many different things so i really enjoyed and i did well in law college too even before my graduation i started practicing and i practiced law for 4 years so when i went for practice i realized that it is so difficult for the poor and the marginalized and the vulnerable groups to get justice because of its own systems and structure um, in the in the judiciary people had to wait for many, many years to get justice. And the process was so expensive. Even when you get a decision, you really don't know whether it's going to be implemented or not. And then I was questioning myself, like I'm working as a justice professional to provide justice to people. So am I really doing that or am I just working mechanically because i have to do it and it's my job i was struggling with that and i really like that feel was exciting i was doing well but deep inside i was not really satisfied about is it really the place where i would like to spend my time my whole life doing and um, then um, i got married in um, 1998 and um, then I went uh, to do my master's after I got married. And when I came back, I felt that I cannot go back to um, law profession again. And the other side of my practice was like, yes, my father was right. It was such a male dominated profession. It really was. And sometimes I used to feel that they don't even see a woman there because I'm there and they're making all kinds of woman jokes and they're always um, commenting on your appearance, on your dress. but they never um, talk about about your performance. How well you you are pleading, how good you are doing. It's it's not there. It's only like if they see me, they say, "Oh, you're looking pretty. Oh, you like this." So it's all about that and not about the 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 substance, the role that you are um, playing, the 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 quality of work that you are doing. It's not that, and and then people are people are so dismissive. Even uh, when you go to bench, there's this doubt. Like, what does she has to say? Or even when they address you they'll address they'll not say like advocate. They they'll address you informally. And yeah, there was lots of this type of thing too. There's lots of gossip. If you talk with a with a male colleague for two, three times, then, then there's this gossip. Oh, is she having affair with this person? Or oh, why is she going, to, uh, like, riding a motorcycle with this man? So all these kind of, you know, backbiting and gossiping and all this, it's very, very demotivating. And I was young and I... I thought that, no, that's it, I cannot deal with it. So that aspect was also there. And I was also not very satisfied with the way how the judiciary was functioning. And I really wanted to promote access to justice to people. And um, I was struggling whether I'm playing a role in that or not. And then um, when I came back um, doing my master's, I also had two little children and this profession is too demanding and there's there was all this this mother's guilt like if i do that then i won't be able to give time to my children and i won't be a good mother i won't have this um, you know the bonding with my children if i go into this profession because i have to give so much time outside my house and um, maybe at that time that was not my priority my children was my first priority so given all this i thought that no i cannot go back to the profession yeah that's what i felt
1: mm. a combination of uh, many things ambitions and and frustrations <laughs> i would say how do you how do you feel about that 16 17 years yes. on was that the
0: this this journey yeah this is the right call. I really, really enjoying working with the community uh, because I feel that that's the place where, um, like, where we should start working at. They are the people who are suffering a lot because of weak access to justice. When you work there, you can really see transformation. And we we always talk about um, like. Looking at changes, looking at transmission at the personal, relational, cultural, structural level. When I work with the community, when I go there, when I meet with mediators, when I meet with disputants, they give me so much energy and I can come back and do more work. Because, you know, community mediators are volunteers. um, They are giving their time to... Uh, do this work. And because of community mediation, there's so much changes has happened in in the community level. We are able to empower the trainers because they are from community people. When we first started, um, they had no knowledge. They had no practical knowledge because it was a new program. We gave them training of trainers. They went out and uh, did the training and the new set of mediators were were like produced and then the mediators started working and what we did was we really provide uh, mediators and trainer opportunity to grow as a resource because generally I think in development world there's lots of dependency in the third party consultant we always bring people from outside to come and teach us uh, but we never look at our own resources and knowledge and work with them to bring that out. So in mediation program, we did that. We worked with um, the existing trainers and mediators to really find out why this community mediation program is successful in Nepal. Because we had realized that whatever we have uh, trained them they are not doing exactly the same. They have adjusted here and there. There's a lot here and there tweaking. So what are the changes that they have made? And why is this working? And what are the Nepali approaches that really help this program to uh, be successful? What, what are the nuances? So we did action research with them. And they were the ones who wrote the revised manual bringing out all the Nepali approaches and that gave them lots of confidence and seeing that knowledge is within us too. Yeah, it's just that uh, we, like, we need some guidance and structure, but it's not that we have to always depend on, the, on someone to come from Kathmandu or from abroad to teach us. It's also like uh, we need to think, reflect, uh, look back at our work, uh, look back at our learnings and that is also knowledge and that is also very important to share so that confidence was built now we have that kind of mediator who has now turned into a trainer who is like at the international quality they can they are so confident now they can travel all over Nepal training other new mediators and uh, they can be a resource for other countries too. And the, the training manual that was designed by these community mediation and, and trainers are used in international um, institution and academies. Recently um, uh, Academy Folke Bernadotte Academy in Sweden. They translated our training manual into English so that they can use it in their own training curriculum. So that gives me lots of energy and motivation to come and work. Like we have a community mediators uh, society. It's a network with 8,000 community mediators and this um, community mediators network they work very closely with policymakers. And because of that, we were able to have institutional changes. We were able to have um, the concept of mediation in the Constitution, in, in laws. Similarly, this program is uh, has really promote social harmony uh, because um, like people are working together. We have uh, like brought uh, people from different, class caste uh, structure to come and work together. And more women are now working as community mediators. There are more than 40% of the mediators are now from the marginalized community. And if you look at the local elections, many community mediators were also elected as um, local representative. So it's also like their leadership journey has, has come so there's lots of empowerment. We were able to link the this social, cultural, relational, uh, structural change vertically up with the policy. And generally, we don't have practice-informed policy. And generally, we don't try to listen to practitioners' voice. So we are really trying hard to bridge that gap and trying to bring the policymakers and practitioners together for a for a better policies.
1: It's it's quite striking to me that the difference between the way you described your experience as a woman in the legal profession and the way you have described it in more the development space. One would almost assume it would be the opposite, right? That the at the community level, you would have perhaps a more sort of patriarchal uh, set of practices in place and the, the legal profession should be, yeah. one hope. Uh, you know, more progressive. But at all, it's, it sounds like you're saying the opposite.
0: <laughs> yeah, but, you know, like when I used to go to work at the community level, at that time, like I was 16 years younger <laughs> and um, we are a very hierarchical society and there's the lots of power and respect come through age too, right? So yeah, when I first used to go to the field work and talk with uh, government people or community, they were not sure. The she has this competency to do this work. Uh, so that kind of lens was always there with the community just not sure like whether i'm really whether i'm capable of doing all this or not but uh, then that there was that aspect and then the the other aspect was like many women they used to come and talk with me and say that oh when we see you it's it's an inspiration um like you give us lots of hope we feel that oh women can also do this so yeah, we. I had a different um, reaction uh, from the community. Some people not believing in me, and I had to prove myself. I had to work twice as hard to say that, yes, I can do my job properly. I know my work. And then the other side was also, like, getting inspiration from me, like, like getting hope that, yes, we can also do it.
1: mm, mm. Has there been a um, book or person or mentor that's been particularly influential and important for you in um, the course of this very long uh, process of of learning and adapting and, and, and persisting?
0: Yeah, I, I think like I'm really fortunate to have uh, John Paul Ladrack as uh, the advisor to community mediation program. So he's the authority in peace building. He's a peace scholar, peace practitioner. And in 2005, when we got funding from McConnell Foundation, John Paul came as our advisor. And he asked us very difficult questions. At that time, we were so proud of our numbers and we used to say, oh, we have trained this many mediators, we have resolved this many cases. And then John Paul used to ask me, so what? Okay, yeah, you have resolved this many cases, then what? (laughs) I said, okay, that's not enough. Like, what do I have to say more? (laughs) And that he made us think, okay, if you're working in this, what are the changes what are the transformation that you have been able to make through this program? How are you building the local capacity? To, uh, why is it successful? What, is, what are the languages they are using in Nepali for the terms that the Western the, like people are using? For example, what how do you translate neutrality? What do you exactly mean? Uh, you, what Nepali word do you use for that? Does it really reflect the essence and uh, similarly when we work on dialogue uh, Chris Pease he's from South Africa he's always there to provide us this bigger picture because we are in Nepal we are doing this day-to-day work so we may not have this bird-eye view about looking at this from top and not being emotionally attached to it sometimes you also need some detachment right so that work I was able and the whole team basically was able to get from these two person and they are the ones who always used to tell us that you people are the expert we are only there to like like walk together with you. But you are the ones, you are, the knowledge is always already there, it's just that you need to like, really look at it in a deeper way and um, like explore more and build skill to bring it out and we are there to help you.
1: Well, it sounds like you're passing that on a bit with uh, the work with Falka Bernadotte and, and, and perhaps elsewhere, passing on some of this learning.
0: Yes, we, we are. I'm trying to do that. And um, yeah, I think it's also the way how people see if they see that, um, oh, you're working at the community level. Maybe they think that, oh, like community problems are just a yeah, small petty work. And when, uh, when you talk about dialogue and mediation, think about like big peace mediation and, like, big broad dialogue on complex issues. And, like, yeah, you're working at the community level, but we are talking about this high-level peace and th- that issue that's, like, big. But uh, community mediation is so simple. It's you deal with animal grazing some other people's farm or, like, children fighting about small water resource so it is it is not very significant so i think like this perception of oh she, the world like she works at the community level maybe that is also one thing that it's all about you know status <laughs> like okay community work not very important maybe i don't know people have that impression hmm what do you
1: <laughs> what do you say to that what's your what's your uh... response?
0: I think that whatever the even the most successful peace process and peace agreements can be derailed if you do not have the mechanism to contain local level problems and disputes. If the community is still going through lots of trauma And uh, there's lots of issues related to identity, related to like broad injustice, structural injustice. Then um, ultimately, if you cannot contain that kind of uh, or if you cannot address and provide structural changes, then I don't think whatever the successful peace processes will be implemented.
1: are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at One onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.